Buhai. You are listening to the Decolonizing Medicine Podcast. I'm Jamie Panetta, a queer non-binary trans person and a practitioner of Hilot and Chinese medicine. My ancestry is mostly Tagalog and Semchinoy, but I was raised here on Turtle Island. This episode is a little different. I'll be flying solo and talking about my personal experience finding out that I'm autistic. There is so much more to say than I could capture in a single episode, so you'll likely hear more on this topic in the future. Everyone's experience with autism is unique, so I encourage you to listen to many people's experiences, especially black and brown, queer and trans folks, because we are often overshadowed by white dominant narratives. So I'd like to announce that for the full moon on Saturday, December 18th, I will be releasing a free phone wallpaper. Recently, I've gotten really into making digital collages, collages, and I'm so excited to share those with people. So that will be available on my website along with my zine shop where I have both a water element and my metal element zines up and available for download and they are priced in a sliding scale so pick what works for you and your community if that um, if that product calls to you. I also wanted to let folks know that I am still available for one-on-one work in either Chinese medicine through telehealth or for HELOT. So uh, my one caveat for Chinese medicine telehealth is that I'm going to let my DC license lapse because I don't feel like it really makes sense to for me to continue having a license in two states. So I won't be able to see folks in DC, but I am maintaining my Maryland acupuncture license. So this only applies for folks that want to see me for Chinese medicine. If you're interested in doing one-on-one work for Helot, that is not under this licensure, so I can see anyone anywhere. And all of the appointments are digital. during a couples therapy session where we were talking about different communication styles and the sweet sweet therapist brought up very gently that um, we might have some neurodivergence to think about and for me specifically autism and how that was showing up with how I relate to other people um, how I communicate how I think about the world And at first I was pretty shocked because I had never considered myself autistic uh, or I had never really picked up on any of my traits as being autistic because, well, first of all, a lot of the information that I had encountered around autistic um, traits was really based on um, studies done on six-year-old white boys. And there's not a lot of information out there on what autism looks like in adults. Um, I also found out about the idea of masking where 
folks who are autistic um, have different coping mechanisms to make them appear more neurotypical in order to navigate a very neurotypical world. So that's not necessarily a good thing because it has a really high cost with burnout and stress and anxiety. Um, But I just hadn't realized that there were multiple ways in which the medical system and medical research were leaving people like me out. So obviously I'm not a six-year-old white boy. I hope that's obvious. I mean, (laughs) I shouldn't be making this podcast if I was. Um, So being left out of consideration because I don't fit a lot of those traits and a lot of that, I, I I don't fit the characteristics of that demographic. And even though I had been in, um, you know, in and out of therapy with with different mental health professionals since high school up until now, and I'm almost forty, um, none of them, except for this most recent one, had even can had brought that up to me. And here's where we see that intersection with. Um, places in medicine that we need to decolonize because if we're only studying like little white kids and we're only getting treated by folks who are white and cis, which all of my therapists have been white cis women, except for the exception of like one person, uh, people are going to fall between the cracks. We are not accounting for the experiences of folks who, well, pretty much anyone who's not a white dude. We're not, we're not accounting for, for that experience and we're not accounting for ways in which we might um, adapt uh, so that we can survive and so that we're not showing these traits that otherwise would have been recognized. As far as how, um, how my life has changed since learning I'm autistic, a lot of it hasn't changed because you know, I, I have developed a lot of skills in, in how to live in my neurodivergent self. Um, like being self-employed is one of those things, even though I didn't realize that I was doing it for having autistic needs. Um, being self-employed is really helpful because I can create my environment however I like. And um, living with less housemates is really helpful, not because I don't like Um, the housemates that I've had in the past, but because I need lower stimulation environments, that's really helpful for me. So, and also um, like I already have an ESA and emotional support animal that's been helping me. So there, there's already these, these things in place that I have automatically learned how to, how to cope with, with um, the way that I think and interact with the world. I, even phrasing it that way makes it sound like I, that I would view autism as a disease, and I really don't. Like, I really view it as more, it really is a, um, to me, it's a natural variance that is just not favorable to have in the context of a really capitalist, white supremacist, um, and patriarchal society. Some of the things that have changed are... Um, having to do with my past relationships to some of my medical providers and, and re like, there's like a remithing that's happening where I've had a lot of trusted medical um, providers who just 
were not competent in catching this and to realize that I had been falling through like these little cracks in their care I was falling through. That's kind of heartbreaking to realize that I was getting inappropriately treated because my traits weren't being recognized um, makes me really sad. It, Even though at this point I have been able to um, create coping mechanisms and create environments that are really supportive, that didn't come easy and it didn't come fast. There was a lot of suffering um, in, in building those things for myself. And also, let me just rephrase, building those things for myself. Like they did not come prepackaged. I didn't step into it. It's a lot of learning on my part by trial and error. It's also um, being able to develop relationships with people who are also neurodiverse. I'm queer and trans, and there just happens to be a lot of queer and trans autistic people and and um, other folks with different neurodivergent uh, presentations. And so within community, I feel like there is a culture of trying to meet people where they're at and understanding that we all have very different experiences. And, you know, the people that I keep company with, we try not to make assumptions about people's experiences. So I've learned a lot from that as well. How it's changed in the present moment is um, seeing the parts of my life that have been a huge struggle and understanding why, having more clarity on why those things have been difficult. So for example, what what in running my own business and my own practice has been difficult for me it has been like the constant engagement with social media or having to to be constantly building social relationships social relationships with people and being like really public in a certain way that's really hard that takes a lot of effort for me and um not just like in an extroverted or introverted way, like being an introvert within an extroverted world. I mean, it's, it's the fact that I all, I do mask with some of my communication where I um, try to sound more uh, neurotypical and in my inflection. Um, I try to listen with like a very attentive face for people who are much closer to me. Like my, my, my inflection is much more flat. I don't smile that much. I have had the wonderful privilege of being able to work with professional photographers for my headshots that make me look really smiley. And that's actually not how I am most of the time. Like I look pretty grumpy almost all the time. (laughs) And I didn't realize that that the resting bitch face was really (laughs) actually a clinical trait. If I look back at the pictures of myself from from childhood, from like infancy to now, like I have almost the same face in every single picture. And it's because I don't actually have that many facial expressions. So, so yeah, certain things are hard and now I'm like, ha- have been hard and now I have a better idea of why, which means I can then um, make different choices. I can choose the things that I that might be hard that I I feel like 
Um, I just want to keep pursuing. And then I can also make better choices about the things that are always going to be hard that I'm like, meh, I'm not going to try. I'm going to do something else. Oh, the cat just jumped on me. Um, this cat is the emotional support animal for my emotional support dog. <laughs> um, <laughs> and like other, other ways in which finding out, um, I'm autistic has affected me is in trying to find providers that can actually work for me. So trying to find someone who is competent with working, um, like a mental health therapist, trying to find one that is competent with working with someone with autism that's not going to treat it as a disease um, and not be super fucked up and ableist. And on top of that, I would like them to also be, you know, not transphobic and not racist. Like, it's kind of hard to find providers in general who are going to have a shared values with me around racial justice, health justice, decolonizing medicine. Like these are all, it, it was already hard before to find providers that I felt were safe to be around. And this is another, this is another layer that a lot of people are very adverse to working with. And on a more personal level, it's been really great exploring what autism looks like in my life and learning from other creators on social media, um, specifically ha uh, under the hashtag actually autistic, like learning, learning about folks and their experiences and the ways that they have adapted to their world and the ways that they also choose not to adapt to neurotypical world has been incredibly eye-opening for me. And there's a lot of support out there that people are just making within community that I think is really wonderful. Um, and it's already improving the ways in which I relate to other people, the ways in which I communicate with my partner, which is really wonderful. They were already super, they had already a, a <laughs> suspected that I was autistic for a while. Um, so it's not so much of a surprise. It, I was the only one that was surprised during that uh, therapy session. <laughs> but yeah, like it's 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 good. It's good to know, and it is it is hard. I have a lot of grief for um, recognizing the ways in which I wasn't cared for, and then also feel really excited about the ways in which I'm seeing other autistic people care for each other and um, do advocacy within their communities. So, I mean, that's a good thing. To me, that's all part of decolonizing medicine is making sure everyone feels cared for and everyone has a place. I have been thinking a lot about the connections between autism and decolonizing medicine and 
Well, I have a lot of thoughts. It's it's a little bit overwhelming on which parts to which parts I should highlight, but um, I mean, one of them is like who gets left out of diagnoses and who gets left out of care. And on the flip side of that, who gets left out of being in caretaker, like professional caretaking roles. If it's like, if all of those things are catered towards white folks, I mean, that's a problem, right? Like the pathology and the diagnoses of everything is oriented towards a certain group of people to the detriment of others. So there's that, which is kind of like the most obvious um, surface level intersection that I, I see with with um, decolonization work and applying it to autism um, diagnoses. And the second thing that I've been thinking about is um, since all these white people set what is neurotypical and then what is neurodivergent, I mean, that is that is dependent on white culture. So when we're looking at different cultures, I mean, if I think about mine, like if we're looking at Filipino culture, Filipinx culture, um, what is considered typical and what is considered not typical isn't, isn't going to be the same. You know, like we don't, like even within my own family, um, I was never raised in a way where we really prioritized eye contact. And so I just didn't really, it didn't occur to me that eye contact would be something that might be really uncomfortable because I wasn't, at least within my family, forced to do it. Um, And I didn't realize that I sometimes avoided eye contact until I was in high school when a friend of mine made fun of me a little bit because she was trying to talk to me and I just couldn't look directly at her face. I kept looking everywhere else except that. Um... And so, and, and, and for those of you who don't know, um, eye contact avoidance is considered one of the, the classic traits of folks with autism. Um, so yeah, like what would even be considered neurodivergent in other cultures? And does that mean that those other cultures are, are maybe just more inviting of the natural diversity of human experience, the natural diversity of our, our brains, you know, like we, we could be living in spaces that, um, we're like, if we, if we were able to live in, in places that were supportive of us in all of our different, uh, wonderful, traits autistic and otherwise like how would medicine be different another thing that i would like to point out about this autism experience for me is that i i sort of am diagnosed and i'm sort of not diagnosed so i'm going to break that down a little bit being autistic was something <laughs> the animals are are running up and down the stairs to get dinner right now. So my therapist is the one who brought up being autistic to me. 
but that does not count as an official autism assessment. So even though this person has been working with me for, I think, two years now, close to two years, um, pretty consistently, like that is not valued the same as, you know, going in for an official assessment with an assessor um, and taking like a five-hour exam. So on an official medical diagnosis, that is, that is not, that doesn't count. So I am sort of diagnosed, and on top of that, after reading a lot of literature, I'm going to back that up and say I'm also self-diagnosed. This is another part where uh, colonization and ableism and capitalism and all of this stuff um, and racism, where it all is intersecting and affecting people in order to get an official autism diagnosis, it usually, like, in my area, around around Baltimore, it costs around $2,800 completely out of pocket. There's pretty much no insurance coverage for that. So if you are, one, not of very much financial means or you don't have some ridiculous job that will pay for an adult um, uh, assessment with insurance. By the way, most, most ins- like in order to get that covered, it's usually for like children, autistic children um, who are under the parents' insurance. It's not something that's as accessible for adults. Um, so you have to have a, a lot of money or like some r- ridiculous, ridiculously lucrative job to make it financially accessible. And you also have to be someone who is like, who is, who is able to identify themselves or be identified by other professionals as someone who might be autistic. So if you are a person of color, um, if you're queer, if you're pretty much anyone except a white cis het boy, you're not going to, you're, you're, you're in a, you're in a situation where you're going to be easily missed as far as as recognizing autism and also if you're an adult like if you are an adult you you can be easily missed as well so like we we have multiple structural oppressions happening here that prevent people from getting a quote-unquote official autism diagnosis and so it is really important to have those to have those supports accessible to people and that's why like it's been so great to to see all of the content being put out by people who are actually autistic um and that has been at least in my experience so far like pretty welcoming to people who uh might not have an official diagnosis because it's not actually possible to get for a lot of us and that doesn't mean that we you know shouldn't have the the different supports that that we might want or need I think that getting a diagnosis is a very personal one. Um, I have been looking into getting it for myself for a couple of reasons. And one of them is to um, maybe get future job accommodations um, to just make being in the workplace a little bit easier. 
I, I, I work from home for my own personal practice, but then I also work in a clinic outside of that. And the other accommodation that I would like to mention is for school. So I'm applying to grad schools. It would be nice to have support from like student uh, disability services. And, uh, you know, like, I also, I, I get nervous that other providers won't take autism seriously with me unless they see that it is officially assessed by an autism assessment professional. So I, like I'm a trans person. I have a lot of experience with people just not believing me or not um, being competent in my care. And this is one way that I'm, I'm trying, I mean, I know that doesn't guarantee that I'm going to have better care necessarily, but it is another, possibly another layer of protection as far as uh, medical visits go. So we'll see. We'll see if I, if I am able to get that assessment in the future. Um, But regardless of having that, like I'm fucking autistic. So for folks who want to stay connected to my work, I've got a lot of things going on as per usual. The best way to find out about what is up and coming is to sign up for my email list. The email, the email, the monthly email news, I almost said loser letter. (laughs) It's not full of losers. Everyone in there is amazing. Um, My monthly newsletter is a great way to stay connected because I don't have to deal with algorithms that creepy meta has put up on Instagram and Facebook. Um, you don't have to deal with like getting stuck in a doom scroll. It's a little healthier for folks. And I just get, I'm able to um, curate my content so you can see it all in one go and you're not having to like filter through a bunch of different posts. So email is one of the best ways to stay connected with me. And I'll post my link tree in the the show notes and that has my um you can subscribe on the email list there i also recently opened up my digital zine shop so i'm getting back into making visual art through digital digital collage and those are those are part of the zines so hello special interest nice to see you again um (laughs) i did a lot of art when I was younger, and then um, because capitalism, I stopped doing art and tried to do real jobs. But it turns out I need to continue doing art just for my own well-being. But the the zines are really themed around different kinds of traditional medicine, specifically Chinese medicine and hilot, which is um, medicine from the Philippines. My next episode after this is going to feature Kale Kale Okalani Matsui from Huriitimana. Um, who is an amazing dancer and dance instructor and cultural worker. So that's, that's an episode I'm really looking forward to. And if you are enjoying this content, if you're learning something, or maybe you just realize you have excess resources that need to be redistributed, you can always go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Jamie Panetta Healing Arts. So you can go there, support this work. The Patreon account not only supports making this podcast, it also supports 
free and low-cost classes for QT BIPOC to learn skills like Qigong. And it also helps with captioning for these podcasts as well to make them a little more accessible. This episode's community shout out goes to Asiatu and Mary from the Audacious Autistics podcast. I found this podcast through hashtag actually autistic on social media. I've been learning a lot from other autistic content creators, which has made my process so much easier. If you've got a little extra to spare this season, head over to patreon.com slash audacious autistics and support Asiato and Mary's work. I really encourage people to go out there and do your own research uh, around neurodivergence. Don't just read the studies that were written by people who are not neuro who are neurotypical writing about neurodivergent people. Seek out the content that is written by those folks who have those diagnoses. So hashtag actually autistic is one of those things. There's also hashtag actually ADHD, but like li- listen to those stories, just like with anything else, like go, go to the source of um, who is most affected by these things, by these issues, who is uh, the most vulnerable in how our medical system is operating right now. So those are incredibly informative. Um, people are very, very generous with sharing their experiences and um, educating other folks who are not of their experience. And also, if you have extra money, give them money because they're creating content for free for the benefit of all of us. Maraming salamat for listening to the Decolonizing Medicine podcast. If you want to support this work via Patreon or apply to be a guest on the show, go to Linktree slash Jamie Panetta Healing Arts. And that's Linktree spelled L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Jamie Panetta Healing Arts. Music is by Amber Ojeda, Head Candy, and Rocky Marciano. Big thanks to Lauren Ellen McCann. They edited the podcast, fed me questions during my recording, and kept me on track during such a vulnerable episode. Last but not least, thank you to all our listeners and supporters out there. Ingat. <laughs>